The Lord be with you. Welcome back to Home Worship, and thanks for tuning in this week. I hope you've had a chance to go through the Home Worship resources already and enter into worship. It's been our aim from the beginning of the pandemic to offer you the resources to worship in your home, and hopefully even to get to the point where we might be able to gather a few households together via Zoom or in person. We want to provide you with what you need to engage in a meaningful worship experience and not just watch something. If this is a blessing to you, then I hope that you'll like and subscribe so we can continue to stay in touch with one another. For the last month or so, we've been talking about this story of Ruth. We've walked through the whole story now, and we're circling back to see some of the deeper layers. There's a long history within the church, and a longer one within Judaism, of reading scripture at deeper allegorical or typological levels. And the story of Ruth just seems to beg us to take that same step deeper in. What I want to talk to you about today is the deeper sense of one of the climaxes of this story, of Ruth's courageous faith on display at the threshing floor. If you remember chapter 3, Ruth bathes, puts on perfume and some nice clothes, and heads down to the threshing floor where Boaz is sleeping. She uncovers his feet and lays down there with him. He's startled awake in the middle of the night and says, Who's there? She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over me, for you are a redeemer. On the surface level, we talked a few weeks ago about this as a beautiful picture of Ruth's daring faith in God and God's hesed, that this could have turned out very badly for her, but she stepped out in faith in God's ways and in Boaz's integrity and his faith. And she's calling on Boaz to step into his role as kinsman redeemer, to be faithful to this role that God has for him, and so to marry her, to spread his cloak over her. It's that phrase that invites us deeper in this morning. The plain sense of the story, spreading your cloak over, is synonymous with marriage. In this tradition surrounding marriage in the time, what's communicated is protection and provision and being united together in one flesh, spreading one's cloak over. But it takes on deeper meanings in many places in Scripture, and one of the most powerful places it does is Ezekiel chapter 16. That's what we're going to look at today. Ezekiel is a prophet of God, writing from exile in Babylon, quite a bit later than the story of Ruth is set. Ezekiel is known for these odd, vibrant, powerful prophecies and acts that are meant to grab the attention of God's people. And one of God's main purposes in these prophecies of Ezekiel is to explain to him and to Israel why this exile is happening. They believed they were the special people of God. They believed they were invincible because God's presence dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel uses these graphic images to startle them awake out of their self-delusion, to shatter it, and to show them things as God sees them. 
Before we go to hear those words, though, in Ezekiel 16, I want to invite you to pray with me that it would be God who's speaking to us today. Let's pray. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom and in your way that we find peace. So, Lord, come and shine upon us as we open your word that we may know your truth and follow in your ways to the glory of your holy name. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book we love. The Lord's word came to me. Human one, show Jerusalem her detestable practices. Say, the Lord God proclaims to Jerusalem, by origin and by birth, you are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. This is how you were treated on the day you were born. Your umbilical cord wasn't cut. You weren't washed clean with water or rubbed with salt, and you weren't wrapped in blankets. No one took pity or cared enough to do any of these things for you. You were despised on the day of your birth and thrown out into an open field. When I happened to come by you, I saw you flailing about in your blood. And I said to you while you were still bloody, Live! I helped you to flourish like a young plant in the field, and you grew tall and became wonderfully endowed. Your breasts were firm, your hair beautifully thick, and you were completely naked. When I passed by you, I realized you were ready for love. So I spread my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I made a solemn promise and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. This is what the Lord God says. Then I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood, and poured oil on you. I clothed you with colorful garments, put fine sandals on you, wrapped your head in linen, covered you with jewels. I adorned you with fine jewelry and put bracelets on your wrists and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. I adorned you with gold and silver. Your garments were made from the finest linen and brocade. You ate the finest flour, honey, and oil. You became very beautiful, fit for royalty, among the nations, you were famous for your beauty. It was perfect because of the splendor that I had given you. This is what the Lord God says. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This chapter, Ezekiel 16, is actually the longest prophecy in the Bible. We only read the first two parts of it in verses 1 through 14. We'll reference the rest later, but I'd encourage you to go and read the whole thing at some point, though I would 
warn you that this chapter also happens to be the most graphic chapter in the whole Bible. And many a preacher has shied away from expounding upon the details that come after this. What we find in this chapter is the overarching story of God and Israel. But that history is told not in the chronological sequence of historical events, but instead, what we seem to have here is God's history with Israel as felt by God. God gives us these vibrant images to show us something of God's emotional history with Israel. And so to also give us a deeper understanding of where we are and how we got here. The first section of the prophecy was about Israel's birth. God says, by origin and by birth, you are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. Of course, Israel would have protested, we're children of Abraham. We are nothing like the Canaanites. The Canaanites, the Amorites, and the Hittites, these are the ones God drove out of the promised land before Israel came into it. It was judgment for their sin that they were destroyed and Israel was planted in their place. We're nothing like them, Israel may have replied. And yet God insists, you are just like them. Even Abraham worshipped idols before I found him, as God points out in Joshua. There's nothing special in your origin, in your line. You were an unwanted child left out to die. There was this unfortunately common practice in the ancient world of exposure, where unwanted children, usually female, were simply thrown out to die in the elements. This is your history, Israel. No one wanted you. No one cared enough to wipe you clean or even cut the umbilical cord. You were left to die. What I think God is trying to do is tear down their sense of ethnic superiority. There's nothing remarkable or special about Israel or its origins. They wandered like orphans. They were left to die. The only thing that set them apart is what comes next. God happens to pass by. God happens to take notice. God, when he sees this infant flailing about in its blood, chooses to take compassion, mercy, to show hesed toward her, and so adopt Israel as God's own child. This is the truth of her origin. She was adopted by God and so offered life. And it was not because she was special or more successful or more desirable or clever than the other nations around her. The truth is much to the opposite. God's adoption is grace and grace only. This is the first part of the prophecy. The second section of the prophecy is all about Israel's covenant with God. 
What's described here is most likely the covenant on Mount Sinai, where Moses has led the people out of Egypt to the mountain of God, and there they enter into this national covenant with God, where God declares, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And here God shows the people how to be God's people, how to be faithful, how to be in the world, how to worship. And from there, God brings the people up into the promised land, drives out these other nations, and establishes Israel in this rich and fertile place where they flourish. But God describes all this through the powerful and emotional metaphor of marriage. As God describes it, God happens by again. And this time, God realizes Israel was ready for love. And so while she was naked, still having nothing, God spread God's cloak over her and entered into a covenant with her. God marries Israel. This, like the adoption, was all grace. There's nothing about Israel that made her desirable. She was not rich or well adorned with jewelry or anything. She's naked. And yet God chooses her chooses to love her and binds God's self to her in marriage, God says, you became mine. And this isn't about possession. It's not about being God's property, but about becoming one with God. And in that new union, God spares nothing and withholds nothing from the bride. It's God who washes Israel, still covered in the blood of her birth, that anoints her with oil. God makes her pure and ready. And then God clothes her in colorful garments, fine sandals, linen, jewelry, a crown, gold and silver. She gives her the finest flour and honey and oil, and Israel flourishes underneath God's extravagant blessings. She becomes beautiful, fit for royalty, famous among the nations for her beauty. And all of it is perfect because of what God has given to her. God not only loves Israel, but lavishes the immeasurable riches of God's grace upon her. God marries Israel. And all this happens under that same metaphor of spreading God's cloak over her. Again, as an act of protection and unity, but also of provision and care, of belonging and blessing, of clothing her richly. By grace alone, this is how God treats her. Have you heard all the parallels to Ruth? Ruth was actually a foreigner, a relative of those Canaanites. She comes to Bethlehem with nothing There's nothing about her that would make her desirable for someone to marry. She had nothing. She comes humbly to Boaz's feet to ask him to marry her, to spread his cloak over her. She has been left out naked, but Boaz chooses to show her hesed. Mercy and love redeems her by spreading his cloak over her. He marries her, and by the end of the story, she is counted as blessed, as good as seven sons. She's given a home. Her mourning is turned to joy. Barrenness becomes the rejoicing with the birth of a child and the blessings pronounced on her play out over the generations as her line leads to King David and after him to Jesus. 
Boaz by spreading his cloak over Ruth becomes a type of God. And Ruth, a type for Israel and now for us. We too come to God with nothing that would make us worthy or deserving. We too are those naked infants found in the field. We are not Christians because we're inherently more intelligent or wise or good. It is grace all the way down. We too come to God like servants, humbly laying at Christ's feet and asking for God's mercy We dress up, sure, in our best clothes, try to present ourselves as worthy of God's acceptance, just like Ruth did, only to find that God came to us long before we ever crawled to God. That the grace goes deeper and runs wider than we'd ever imagined. That even our best robes are like rags before God. And yet we find we've been chosen anyway by grace and grace alone, and saved while we were still sinners. In Ezekiel's day, Israel knew she'd married God. She knew they were bound together. The problem was that she came to presume upon that relationship and even exploit it. She came to believe that the riches God had given her were her own. And what God is trying to tell her through Ezekiel is that she deserves none of this. She owns none of it. It's grace all the way down. Her adoption by God was grace. Her marriage and covenant to God was grace. And even now, as she has fallen, her salvation would one day come about by grace. If you keep reading this chapter, Ezekiel 16, you will find the incredibly graphic depiction of Israel's unfaithfulness in its marriage to God. She is the cheating spouse who, in fact, becomes a prostitute, who turns around and gives God's gifts to others for cheap sex. She tears out God's heart and tramples it on the side of the road. And so in the end, when her cheating is simply too much, God allows her to leave. The covenant marriage is broken, and she is given over to all those that she chased after. And it's those lovers who destroy her. This is the exile. Israel chooses to worship other gods, so God eventually let her have them. But then something remarkable happens. If you go all the way to the end of the chapter... Starting at verse 59, you find this surprising twist. The Lord God proclaims, I will do to you just as you've done, despising solemn pledges and breaking covenants. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you when you were young, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And you will remember your ways and be ashamed when in spite of your covenant, I take your big sisters and little sisters from you and give them back to you as daughters. I myself will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will remember and be ashamed and you won't even open your mouth because of your shame after I've forgiven you for all you've done. This is what the Lord God says. 
Imagine the pain of a spouse's cheating. Some of you don't have to imagine it. Imagine the pain of it happening over and over and over again. Imagine the heartache of having even your grace thrown back in your face. This is what it feels like to God when we place our trust in other things. For Israel, that was idols and other gods who promised an abundant harvest, fertile wives, and security. In our day, those idols look like careers, stock markets, political parties, even romance and technology. And yet for all the pain that God has endured in loving us, God here says, nevertheless, I will remember that original covenant from your youth when I adopted you. And I myself will establish an everlasting covenant with you. I will forgive you for all your sins and you will be speechless on the day I do it. And this, friends, is exactly what Jesus was doing. Establishing a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted by God and never rejected by him. Jesus fulfilled for us all the faithfulness that we could never muster. And Jesus took on the punishment we deserve for our unfaithfulness. Jesus brings God to us and us to God. But it's Paul who says it far better than I ever could in Ephesians chapter 2. Hear this with Ezekiel 16 ringing in your ears. At one time you were like a dead person because of the things you did wrong and your offenses against God. You used to act like most people in our world do. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time, you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted so that you were children headed for punishment just like everyone else. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things we did wrong. And he did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed. It's not something you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way we live our lives. It's God who adopted us as children and cared for us 
It's God who found us in death and said, live. It's God who has chosen us in marriage and has been united to us to pour out the riches of his grace upon us. And it's God who chooses to forgive even the sin of our unfaithfulness. And all of this is grace, 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 undeserved, utter gift. It's not something we can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment, Paul says. We are clothed in Christ's compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. These are the rich robes God gives us that good works may be our way of life. Friends, let's come to Jesus like Ruth came to Boaz, recognizing our need, our nakedness, our poverty in spirit, and laying down at his feet, asking him to spread his cloak over us that we might receive the riches of his grace and be clothed in his new life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.